Evidence and Answers. Skeptics and atheists often dismiss religion as a man-made creation which should no longer be taken seriously. But is religion the invention of man, or was it originally from God? What is the origin of religion? Is religion the creation of man to fulfill his need for meaning and explain the world around him? Or did God first reveal himself to mankind? What are the theories on the origin of religion, and which one is supported by the evidence? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Most of us have been taught that religion originates with man and evolved over the centuries into the various religious systems we have today. In this show, Pat and his guest, world religion scholar Dr. Winfred Cordowin, explains the various theories on the origin of religion and critiques each view. What does the Bible teach regarding the origin of religion, and does it have the evidence to support its case? Let's join Pat and Dr. Cordwin now as they discuss the origin of man's religion. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where each week we present compelling evidence and reasons for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Well, what is the origin of religion? Is it completely man-made in its origin, or is it from God to us? What does the evidence reveal? Well, to bring us some answers on this issue, we have with us today one of the top Christian scholars in the field of world religions, Dr. Winfred Cordowin. Dr. Cordowin received his doctorate from Rice University and serves as Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University there in Upland, Indiana. He's the author of several books, one of my favorites, Neighboring Faiths, and if you only can get one book on the world religions, I recommend that one, along with a Handmade to Theology, and a great book on Christian apologetics, Reasonable Faith, Basic Christian Apologetics. So he's not only a scholar in the field of world religions, but a great apologist and defender of the Christian faith. So it's a great privilege to have Dr. Winfred Cordwin with us today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cordwin. Hi, Pat. It's great to be with you again. Well, we're talking about the origin of man's religion, and you've come out with a new scholarly book on the subject, In the Beginning, God. Now tell us, why is the study of the origin of religion important? I mean, why should we examine the evidence? A lot of Christians feel, well, you know, the Bible says it in Genesis that God first revealed it to Adam, and that's good enough for me. Why should we study the origin of religion? Well, first of all, Pat, I don't think I'm going to take issue with those who are going to say what it says in the Bible is good enough for me. After all, if it's based on divine revelation, that's always acceptable. However, there are a lot of questions brought up against what the Bible says, and for anyone who is subjected to those questions or runs into them or is being taught differently what it says in the Bible, it's certainly going to be a help, I would think, to learn that the biblical point of view is, in fact, not only something that we believe blindly by faith, but that also has support in science. Exactly. Now, there are three, well, there's several, but there's three very prominent theories regarding the origin of religion, the subjective theory, the evolutionary theory, and original monotheism. Now, the first two teach that religion is man-made in origin. Mm-hmm. So explain to us the first one, the subjective theory. What is that theory? Well, the subjective theory is really very different from a true theory of origin. 
If I ask for the origin of something, presumably I'm asking for when and where did such and such a particular phenomenon begin. Now, I may not have a precise answer, but that's the direction in which I would go, looking back in history. What is the origin of the automobile, or what is the origin of the Italian language, or whatever? I go back in the past and try to find the historical developments. The subjective approach does not do that, actually. It uses the same language, and so it becomes quite misleading, but it really looks at what supposedly goes on within our minds. So, for example, Rudolf Otto, the famous German philosopher and theologian, said that the origin of religions is ultimately found within the subjective, emotional parts of our minds, and it's really not a rational question that we're answering, but it goes beyond the rational. Now, I don't doubt that religion has an emotional, subjective component, but that really does not help me understand what the origin of religion is. Along with him, there are some other prominent proponents of this theory, isn't there? Wasn't Sigmund Freud a proponent of this theory? Yeah, well, <laughs> this is he is very definitely one of the most bizarre examples of this because he not only held his theory, but then he also took up some of the narratives created by other people and suited them to his theory, and uh, the whole thing became total fiction. And Freud believed, as everyone knows, that virtually all of our mental problems or extraordinary things, such as religion, stem from some kind of a complex, like an Oedipus complex, and so he read his theories into the reports given by his patients. He was forever correcting his patients as to what they actually experienced. And when it came to religion, he also invoked that image. And his theory was that once upon a time, human beings on a relatively low state of development lived in hordes, like baboons do, for example. <laughs> and there's only one elder, one leader, the patriarch of such a group, and he is the one who alone is allowed to mate with any of the females. And then when he died or is defeated in some way, then the position goes to the next baboon-like human being. Well, Freud had been exposed to some of the writings on totemism, and some of those make reference to a purely fictional idea of a totem feast, and so he came up with the following scenario. The younger people finally got tired of the system, and so they banded together and killed the patriarch, and presumably ate him. They were cannibals. Mm. But then, of course, they had killed their father and were now mating with their mothers, and so we have the classic Oedipus complex, which caused them all kinds of psychological grief. And so they tried to ameliorate it by reenacting what they had done in some way, and this is what Freud would have called a totem feast, and in some symbolic way consumed the flesh and blood of their dearly departed former elder. And so this ceremony then eventually turned into communion, where Christians say that 
They are consuming symbols representing Christ's body and blood, which has absolutely nothing to do with totemism or anything like that, but uh, Freud made that connection. And so we have, in his theory, the origin of religion in the world's largest Oedipus complex. Wow, so basically he was saying that religion is a man-made construct fulfilling the need for some kind of universal father figure that is universal within all mankind, and that's kind of the origin of religion is what he's saying, huh? Right. Now, another proponent of this was a prominent theologian, I believe, Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach, yes. Yes, what did he propose? Now, his theory was pretty prominent, wasn't it? Well, for a while, and even if his own version of the theory is not that important, the basic ideas are pretty common, namely that when we say God, we are really saying idealized human being. He said that human beings have constructed the concept of God by imagining what an ideal person would be like. So we have certain virtues, such as we can be good and we can love and we have some power to do things. And he said that human beings projected those virtues and properties onto some totally imaginary, infinite ideal, and then started to pray to it. So they created their own God out of themselves, and then they decided to worship their own creation. And so in the final analysis for Feuerbach, the worship of God is pretty much equal to the worship of self. Yeah, so according to his theory, religion doesn't really tell us about God. It really tells us more about ourselves and our ideal values and imaginations, doesn't it? That's right, Pat. It really is purely a matter of idealizing ourselves. So then, of course, he said, you know, his final point was that such a being does not exist as a being, and so it's purely a matter of our imagination, because the only reality is actually material reality. And so he's the one who presumably coined the phrase, we are what we eat, because we are nothing but physical stuff like food that has come together and has the ability to think, but there's no such thing as a spiritual component in human beings or any spiritual beings such as God. I was just going to say, and I might mention that it was Feuerbach who then was adopted by Marx and the whole philosophy of dialectical materialism or communism, that if human beings are nothing but material, then all the insights of others who invoked some kind of spiritual nature have to be reduced to human beings as social and material animals. Yes, you know, I was going to mention that ideas have consequences, and understanding the origin of religion has had some impact on the culture throughout the world, hasn't it? Just like what you oh, mentioned. Oh, very definitely. Yeah, that's one very of the... I believe that's why your book is very important and one of the reasons we need to study the origin of religions. What are some of the weaknesses of this theory? I mean, is this an adequate theory that adequately explains the origin of religion? Well, are we still talking about the subjective yes. theory? Yes, the subjective theory. Well, it does not do anything of the sort. It substitutes someone's imagination of what may be going on in the thought processes of those who 
I believe in a religion for how a religion actually may have arisen. The famous French sociologist Emile Durkheim is a really good example of this. He has a very complex theory of how human beings came to religion by way of the practice of what he calls totemism, and spends hundreds of pages defending it. And he said, of course, we have no idea whether this really happened in history, but this is how religion must have originated, and all he's doing is pointing to what he thinks must be going on in the minds of people. And it's very, very confusing, to say the least, and possibly misleading as well, because people expect to hear one thing, but hear another. Same thing, you know, I start in the book in Chapter 1 with a quote that I've used in a number of different places, where Joseph Kitagawa, a scholar formerly at uh, the University of Chicago, says that we must always remember that the question of origin is not a historical one, but a metaphysical one. And we want to say, I think, I hope, huh? How can that be? So the subjective theory doesn't do anything because, for one thing, it confuses the categories of what we experience and how historically something arose. And then in the process, of course, it does not give us a clue to the historical question of how religion may have somehow come up as a part of human culture. Now, you've used the term a couple of times that I think people may not quite understand, totemism. Can you explain mm -hmm. that term a little bit for us? Well, the word totem, as it is used for the most part nowadays, refers to a society that is divided into certain subgroups, can be called fratries or moieties. Now, it has a longer history, but I'm going to try to keep things relatively simple. For example, among the Tlingit of the Northwest, Alaska and British Columbia, there are two large subgroups, the raven and the eagles, and everyone is born either as a raven or an eagle, and that depends on which group your mother was a part of. And now, an eagle can only marry a raven, and a raven can only marry an eagle. Then underneath those major groups, you have subgroups such as, say, the killer whales, who are a part of the eagles, and the uh, salmon, who are under the ravens, and there are quite a few other subgroups. And again, you cannot marry within your own subgroup, since that would be marrying within your larger group also. And then you're, you can only marry roughly on the same plane of your lower groups, like the salmon and the killer whales are roughly equal, but then there are groups of higher standing and lower standing ones, and the, the marriage needs to take place on a roughly equal level. So that prevents inbreeding, and it also has a great amount of influence on food distribution, since usually totem groups are limited to certain kinds of foods, or there's some other rules involved. And so if there should be a shortage, then one group will not be affected because the shortage of that particular item would not have been permissible for them anyway. And so totemism is 
say, social structuring, and it's found all over the world. I'm not saying that every society has it, but seems to be no geographical limitation to it. You find some such arrangement among, say, the Cherokee of North Carolina, who have seven groups, or the Australian Aborigines, who oftentimes have many and very diverse kinds of groups. So this is an important aspect of understanding traditional religions, because religion and social practices are mutually intertwined, but at the same time, it shows a society that has gone through various stages of development. Let me put it this way. I can't just imagine that the first human beings got together, and the first thing they said was, okay, you're a raven and a salmon. You're an eagle and a killer whale, and so forth. But when you have a totemic society, you very clearly have a society that has developed for quite a while. And that makes a difference, because in that case, what they believe about God and spirits has probably gone through quite a history and may include any number of changes or mutations, if you will. I see. Well, that's the subjective theory. It's based on the idea that really religion originates with man. It's a projection of human ideals. It's a theory that does not have the strongest historical support for it. Well, what about the next one, the evolutionary theory of religion? Explain that one to us a little bit. Well, this was a hypothesis that had been in the air, so to speak, for a long, long time before Darwin came around, namely the notion that human beings with all of their culture and so forth somehow had developed in some way from some primitive forebears. Now, what Darwin did is he came up with a theory that was at least on the surface scientifically acceptable, and at that point then, what was a mere idea started to turn into the dominant theory, if not law, at certain points in time, of how living beings must have developed. And then specifically, it was applied by people like uh, Tyler to human beings' cultural development. Now, Tyler thought that religion began when human beings first recognized the presence of various spirits in the world, like their own souls being spirits and plants having spirits and the departed ancestors have spirits. Some people put another stage ahead of that, the idea of magic, that human beings somehow try to manipulate nature with pure spiritual forces, but then in that case, if the scheme of Tyler has any place at all, then they came to recognize spirits. And so from there, then we go on. After some time, people thought, well, there must be a hierarchy among spirits. Some are stronger than others. And those who seem to have more oomph behind them, we will call gods. And so out of animism, our polytheism developed and then eventually, skipping some hypothetical stages, 
in polytheism, there might have been one god who was particularly the head of the council of gods, and then after a while, some very smart people thought maybe he's the only god, and so then we have monotheism. Monotheism is nothing more in that view than a kind of blown-up animism. If you can think of the spirits of animism as little balloons, and when they become gods, there's a little bit more air blown into them, and then when you come to monotheism, the balloon is totally filled, and there aren't any other divine beings around, but it's still all just the emergence of something greater from the rather lowly first stages of animism. Yeah, so like the subjective theory, the evolutionary theory teaches that religion originates with man. The first form of worship then was animism or spiritism, which evolved to polytheism and eventually to monotheism. So the oldest form of religion should be animism or worship of nature and the spirits, according to this theory, correct? That's right, and you're wise in saying should be. Now, what impact has this theory had upon the culture and society? Well, I think that theory, with uh, various ramifications, has been the most widely accepted theory, and still is. It gives us human beings power to say that ultimately all religions are nothing more except with a lot more air blown into the balloons, but otherwise nothing more than the fantasies of pre-civilized human beings. And so just as we can reject the animism of, say, early Australian people in the same way, since it's really no different, we can reject any other religion and become autonomous in our own vision of ourselves. If we want to, we can choose a religion that suits us, but we know deep down inside that, heck, it's still just something that human beings have contrived to make themselves happy. I need to add something very, very important. Absolutely. If you ask around, if you were to take a poll of various anthropologists today and ask them, do you believe in the theory of the evolution of religion as it was taught, say, by Tyler or Fraser from say, animism to monotheism, they are going to most likely reply, goodness, no, that stuff is totally out of date. We do not accept any such theory of the origin of religion. However, as soon as the same scholars approach a particular religion, they do so with the exact same assumption that this specific religion began with belief in spiritual forces and spirits and then grew into polytheism and eventually monotheism. So it is not acceptable, supposedly, to pledge allegiance to a theory of the evolution of religion. However, in practice, that's still the way in which most scholars go. Yes, you know, I remember learning the evolutionary theory, even though it wasn't outright stated, you know, it was implied in our curriculum, in my religion classes in high school and college, and even in my psychology and sociology classes. This pretty much was the theory that was implied to be true in our studies. Right, and you find the same thing in 
textbooks today. The theory is, as I said, not directly acknowledged, but implemented. And the reason, of course, is that you don't want to go into the direction that religion began with God. That's just not acceptable, and without making any ad hominem arguments immediately, so I may do so later, you begin with a worldview that rules out the supernatural a priori. What choice do you have but to go with some kind of theory that says that religion is a creation of the human mind? This concludes part one of Pat's interview with world religion scholar Dr. Winfred Corderin on the origin of man's religion. If you would like to hear this entire interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this interview and many other great interviews with Pat and his guests. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlb.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers. <laughs>